to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, and welcome back to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Man, I don't know about you guys, but I am beat. I am exhausted. I I may still be recovering from the Lions of Liberty holiday extravaganza. And it was a long one. It was almost two hours, our last episode. So you might, you guys might still be recovering too. You might still be getting through it. But I know you're diehards. I know you're Liberty diehards. I know you're here. And you're looking for more podcasts, and I'm here to bring them to you, even during the holiday season. Now, you might see a little less content over on our website, lionsofliberty.com, while, you know, a lot of our writers spend some much needed, much deserved, if you ask me, time with their friends and family. But the podcast, the Lions of Liberty podcast, breaks for no holiday. Because liberty breaks for nobody. We always need to advance liberty. You know, I have a bunch of new toys I got. I have an iPad mini in the other room that I'd like to be playing with. I got a Wii U in there. I could be, you know, I could be Super Mario right now. I don't even need to be Mark Claire. I could be Super Mario jumping on Cooper Troopas, let alone my two Siberian Huskies, who I love with all my heart. <laughs> they're out there, too, and they're all waiting for me. But first, I got to do another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast because, folks, the show must go on. Now, today we're going to discuss a topic near and dear to my heart. An issue that I'd say, you know, one of the issues that most drew me into the liberty movement, and that is the issue of foreign policy. I remember 9-11 vividly. I was in college. I remember I woke up and I heard something about, you know, hey, you got to turn on the news. I don't think we're having class today. And I look and, you know, you, you guys know what happened by now. I don't need to recap it, but, you know, it, it started making me think, you know, what? obviously something crazy is going on here. Even if I don't know what it is, I got to find out what this is all about. If people can just fly planes into buildings and fly planes into the Pentagon, I mean, clearly something's messed up. And I started reading. Because I felt strange. I felt strange about how the government was immediately pushing for a war in this place called Afghanistan that I'd barely even heard of. I thought that it was a bunch of guys from Saudi Arabia. So my interest was piqued. I had to learn more. I had to know more before I could boldly state opinions against this stuff. So I started reading. started reading a lot of websites. And a big one that I came across was a website called antiwar.com. And my guest today knows a thing or two about the anti-war movement she is on the board of the outright libertarians as well as the ladies of liberty alliance she is also the director of operations for antiwar.com angela keaton welcome to the lions of liberty podcast hey mark thank you of course and merry christmas to you angela i hope santa treated you well this year oh everything is fantastic that is awesome to hear now before we get into what I want to talk about today, you know, a few of the top foreign policy stories of the year, I'm a little curious about your background. How did you first become involved, you know, with the liberty movement overall and, you know, more specifically with the anti-war movement? The libertarian movement, um, I had parents who were strongly interested in those kind of politics. The anti-war movement, well, that's a more complicated, long story, but I think the day of 9-11, it occurred to me that there was going to be a problem. Um, I've been reading antiwar.com, always a libertarian enthusiast and hobbyist. I've been reading antiwar.com since 99, and 
I was working as a manager of a radio station in Austin, as a leftist public radio station, kind of really weird lefty radio station. And at the time, anti-war issues seemed to be the most pressing. And the anti-war thing is what really moves me, being anti-imperialism against occupation and torture. I mean, all kinds of things, the libertarian agenda, I mean, to me, are all one issue, of course. Yeah, I love freedom. I hate taxes, respect guns, that sort of thing. But, you know, it doesn't move me the same way as the fact that the state, you know, I mean, especially the state under which I live, uh, feels that they absolutely can rain hell over various countries, people with whom we don't have any quarrel, people that we don't even know, most of us don't even acknowledge, you know, even know that these countries are going to people exist. Why are we killing them? I don't know. But that's all the things the state does, and all the state does a horrible thing. It's all done by force, all done by threat. But of that, that's the thing that makes me not want to have a normal job. Because they, otherwise, I mean, they, you know, libertarian activism is fun, but it's certainly not the way one should have a career or be one's, I think, primary you know, preoccupation in life. The time of empire does make me think that the one thing we should focus on is not killing people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a heck of a starting point. And 9-11 was a big turning point for me as well. That's kind of the first time I think I, I guess I woke up to the ways of the world. It kind of made me, I was in college at the time. It made me realize, well, okay, I don't know what the heck just happened there, but whoa, things are messed up and I got to start finding out about it. And I remember, you know, antiwar.com was actually one of the first websites that I stumbled upon when I started, you know, looking into this stuff, looking into foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy, that kind of thing. It's, it's funny you mentioned that you're reading them back in 99. I mean, that's one of these websites. Now there's a million libertarian websites out there, but antiwar.com was one of the first, at least one of the first that, you know, I and many other people became aware of. So how did you translate, you know, this kind of passion, this anti-war passion, this libertarian stuff into, you know, actually working with antiwar.com? What is your everyday role there? Director of Operations. It means we do all kinds of things. You know, everything from donor development, uh, finding ways of raising money and organizing, you know, managing pledge drives and being sort of a consumer uh, ombudsman (laughs) between the readers and the staff. I contribute in a very, very low-level way to the editing by uh, looking for links. We have people from all over the world, and we have a small, tireless staff that basically combs websites, newspapers, books every day for the best in foreign policy. And that's a, a really amazing and impressive thing. Well, what's a little bit sad is that we're doing it with half the strength that we did um, five years ago. We've had to cut about half the staff over these past five years for all sorts of reasons. The most important, or the one that we talk about quite a bit, is the changes in the uh, anti-war movement after Obama came into office. And then, of course, for our own just amusing self-interest, the... Uh, the situation where, of course, the ACLU um, has been really deft in helping us on this, but um, thanks to someone doing a Freedom of Information Act request some time ago on some other um, random subject, that we found out that the FBI was, in fact, spying on antiwar.com, specifically our founder, Eric Garris, and our editorial director, Justin Armando, and that's led to, to no rounds of hilarity and paranoia over the past few years. Yeah, I'll talk about that spying a little bit. Was the FBI specifically spying on Mr. Garris and Mr. Raimondo? Like, were they looking into their personal lives as well, or was that just related to, you know, just their specific activities related to the website? And, you know, why do you think the FBI is taking their time, you know, these people that are supposed to be protecting us, watching out for threats, you know, surveying and spying on the operators of a peaceful anti-war website? Those are both two big questions. The first one is, um, at the time... The Freedom of Information Act request, which someone had put on the website, and it wasn't filed by any of us, 
a minor blogger had an interesting question, and it brought up um, in the Freedom of Information Act request the FBI did, there were several pages about the writings of Justin Romando, our editorial director, and specifically asking questions about his life, all of which, by the way, if they were asking, it easily even found within, you know, a 30-second Google search. Right. It's amazing how pedestrian the initial questions of FBI agents are. They're simpletons. In addition to being evil and kind of arbitrary. But, you know, after this case was handed, after this information was handed over to the ACLU, which, of course, the ACLU immediately thought, my God, this is an amazing case. We must take this. They passed around uh, their own Freedom of Information Act requests, and more that had been uncovered. It's quite clearly that the FBI had anti-war.com under surveillance as recently as 2012. And... Mm -hmm. Fairly certain that surveillance began sometime. We have hard evidence by 2002. But to be fair, and this kind of goes to your second question about why the FBI is investigating anti-war sites and so on. You know, Eric Garrison's Romano had long careers of activism well before antiwar.com. They were part of Murray Rothbard's uh, Radical Caucus and Libertarian Party. Eric had been part of Peace and Freedom. Uh, Justin Romano had been, you know, involved in several different activist and intellectual movements throughout the years. So, they already had, you know, triggered interest. In fact, there's some evidence that they've been investigating Eric Garris probably since 1971. You know, the FBI has a long history of, of spying on activists. I mean, that's not paranoia. It's just well-recorded history. And the anti-war movement specifically all last century has been spied on. You know, anti-war.com was being necessarily singled out in a certain way. It, I mean, it's part of what the FBI does is spy on anti-imperialist, anti-empire, anti-war groups. The FBI, uh, there's quite a bit of a curious interest in um, peace and justice groups in uh, the Midwest over the part of last decade, especially those that seem to have a focus on a, a justice for Palestinians. And this is a part of a longstanding tradition of FBI spying on, you know, one of the most important things the state does is wage war and, you know, can maintain and conduct the empire. So people who are against the empire, against the American way of life, or against motherhood and apple pie. Sure, and I mean... This surveillance on activists has been a, you know, a big part of the FBI's job, or maybe not their official job, but it's been what they've been doing for a long time. A few of my last guests have brought this up. Um, we had John Whitehead last week. He was talking about how the FBI spends so much time just looking into activists, looking into peace activists. Roger Stone talked about you know, the FBI was looking into, you know, Martin Luther King, John Lennon. So it's certainly nothing new. You know, the fact is, if you're an activist and your voice is out there and you're speaking against the empire, you might catch the ire of the government and some of their agencies. Now, moving on, I want to talk about some of the top foreign policy stories of 2013. It's the end of the year, so I'm going to fall into that, you know, super easy trap. It's easy to do a, show, a recap show. So, you know, let's look back a little bit. As far as you, what do you think is your, you know, maybe the biggest story overall as regards to foreign policy this past year? Oh, the, uh, the Edward Snowden revelations. And that's because, I mean, this is not just, you know, there were big revelations that Edward Snowden released regarding the NSA's surveillance on the population, but it's not just, you know, the U.S. population. They're essentially spying on the whole world. So this really does affect everybody, isn't that right? Everything about that story is fascinating and relevatory, everything about it, from the characters involved all the way into where you see different groups of people sort of aligning themselves in these different camps ideologically and their ideological reactions to it. It's absolutely fascinating. I, most important story, and it makes many of the other stories, of course, it puts them into different contexts, some of the other big stories of the year, like the Chelsea Manning trial, or what's happening in Syria, or the uh, Iran talks and agreements, negotiations. 
Let's get into that a little bit. You mentioned Chelsea Manning, also known as Bradley Manning. He finally had, you know, somewhat of a trial this year. Can you tell people about that a little bit? The important words about the Chelsea Manning story to understand are that to uh, download quite a bit of information that uh, clearly shows the Iraq war for what it is, a horrible, horrible war crime against the people who did us no harm. And with those revelations, including a famous video now where you see U.S. soldiers literally firing down on children in Iraq, you know, they're firing on civilian journalists. Um, it's a horrible, horrible thing to do, um, you know, in the, in the Church of the Empire. I mean, that's treason, right? Truth is treason. It's a very Ron Paul-esque story. The famous Ron Paul line, truth is treason in the empire of lies. Yeah, it's just uh, in Manning in every way, everything about her is, you know, subverts and and, and destroys a common thinking. She's such a strange and powerful symbol in so many ways that makes people react very viscerally. So the Manning story is a very good one, too. It tells you where someone's soul is at the moment, is how they react to that story. It's a strange and compelling character. Everything from admitting in the uh, chat logs to being a, uh, you know, atheist, libertarian, computer nerd, um, the transgenderism, the slightness, you know, a very, very tiny person who uh, clearly has a great reserves of uh, courage and quick thinking. Everything about that story to me is also very fascinating. I mean, it ties very well into the Snowden and the kind of person Snowden is. You know, some of this strangely geeky guy who can draw really attractive, you know, interesting bohemian women to him, uh, <laughs> his choice of girlfriend, uh, to his ways of, you know, making a very high income, comfortable living of himself, even though not particularly, you know, strongly formally educated in any way. You know, very self-made in his uh, nerdism and his brain and the fact that he was a Ron Paul donor, you know, a giggle-worthy footnote to that story, but that someone like that could pull that off. The subtle clues about wearing the, you know, even the EFF hoodie or, you know, making clear his politics, you know, with his stickers and things at work without anyone ever looking and noticing that there might be something here. But he had to be as cool as a cucumber to pull that off. And that's impressive. It's very impressive. I mean, it's just the way people react to revelations about these things. It's all empire comedy, the way the different roles of world leaders, those who pretend to be outraged, those who actually are outraged because imperialism... It's an amazing, amusing, and funny story, and it does kind of give you it gives you insights into where people where people are. I, empire right now is the key to the soul. Absolutely, I like that phrase you used, "empire of comedy," because when you really look at the bigger picture and you look at all these political a- actors, and you see this just feigned outrage over certain things, and you see this whole theater for what it is, it really is just. If it wasn't really about people being murdered and tortured and spied upon, it would be funny. But unfortunately, it is quite serious. Going on to a few foreign policy stories this year, we had the civil war in Syria. I mean, the United States was just seemingly itching to get in there. The neocons were frothing at the mouth. It seemed like just another inevitable war that the United States was going to enter, just like Libya, and more so like Iraq. All the voices were calling for it, and it didn't happen. It just, they backed off. You know, what What do you think happened there? Was that more international pressure, the, you know, Vladimir Putin kind of flexing his muscles, or do you think that, would you attribute that more to the kind of the American public taking a more of a non-interventionist stance? In the areas that I study on my own, I'll, I'll stick to some of those. I probably shouldn't uh, comment on the Putin matter. These things are a little more, a little more complicated. I would say it's fairly clear that neoconservatism, quite predictably, since it was never a grassroots movement, 
is finally no longer a potent political force. I mean, at the time, the neoconservatives, their influence is coming to an end, thankfully. Shrouse to William Buckley and you know, everything at the National Review and so on, and commentary and everything about neoconservatism, even some of the ways it overlaps into paleoconservatism, is a blight, morally. Conservatism is the worst thing that happened last century in the U.S. It's just really a horrible, horrible ideology that has so much racism built into it. And it's not because I'm pro-PC and I didn't sympathize with the neoconservatives on the anti-PC during the uh, Beach Code Wars of the 90s and so on, but there's just very little to recommend endless warfare in pursuit of democracy, which is a dubious proposition in the first place, democracy that is. Everything about it is authoritarian and cruel and uncivilized. So that, I think it's a wonderful and amazing thing that neoconservatism has kind of died. The grassroots movement is it primarily an intellectual movement that's a, that was always fairly small and cultish that had far disproportionate influence and it. It has really no serious ethical basis behind it. I think the worst thing that the conservative movement or, you know, the neoconservative movement, the combination of both did over you know, the past maybe century or so, like you said, is convince or somehow trick maybe legitimate small government or no government leaning libertarian type people that lumping that in with big government abroad, you know, somehow associating war and empire with small government and with personal responsibility. And that's something that I think the libertarian movement now is finally start trying to, you know, able to break free from a little bit. And, and, and those things aren't no longer associated with each other, you know, nearly as much. So I think that's absolutely a positive thing. What people like you at antiwar.com are doing. It's been an interesting time. I mean, obviously it was a huge blow that uh, Barack Obama's PR machine managed to paint him, but, you know, can plausibly even consider him to be the peace candidate. But American liberals, and I mean liberal in the, in the corporate democratic sense, commitment to to peace has always been fairly thin. I mean, Woodrow Wilson, after all, is a warrior president, the, emperor, the original real emperor. The neoconservatives and the nationalists were right. I mean, this is the anti-war movement that you saw from 2001 to, you know, what the remnants were by uh, 2007. It was an anti-Bush movement. So, that really, really hurt. It really hurt us. But libertarianism had its own internal fault lines that contributed to damaging the anti-war movement because it's not understood now since everybody believes that history began in 2007 when Ron Paul rose. <laughs> right. Libertarianism always had its role in the anti-war movement. I mean, you go back and you read about, you know, people like Carl Hess and Rothbard and so on, you know, demonstration, the anti-war movement. I mean, the reason why the reason why the LP was formed was in opposition to the Vietnam War. The libertarians were not always very good at holding up their end of the anti-war movement at different times, and I think, generally speaking, there was a certain failure among libertarians after uh, 2001, and all can't be blamed on you know objectivists or a few people and some of the Koch-funded institutions. I mean, overall, the libertarian movement you know needed a better even stronger anti-war response. Harry Brown was heroic the day after in you know, writing about what our reaction should be, which is not much. Yeah, I believe he had an article on September 12th uh, just about non-interventionism, about U.S. foreign policy and, and directly tying it to 9-11. Right, and it's unfortunate that blowback needs to be explained. It should just be kind of understand as the common law of the universe, you know, the basic laws of nature. 
Well, it seems um, logical. I mean, when we're kids, if somebody goes and hits me or steals from me and I'm, I'm two years old, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go hit back. So, I mean, it seems like something we've kind of seen as, you know, from childhood, but yet somehow as adults, when we relate it to foreign policy, it, it gets lost in there amidst all the political rhetoric. Yeah. We didn't, as a movement, do a very, very good job in really, you know, taking our place in the anti-war movement at a time when we really could have had influence in directing what the anti-war movement looked like in terms of really staying focused on the opposition to empire and foreign aid to people like, for example, dictators or CIA covert operations. That, I mean, really should have been an absolute focus of what the libertarians were doing at that time. I mean, besides, you know, you know, putting out white papers on taxes and protesting, uh, you know, at the post office once a year. It was a fairly serious matter, and I don't know if we entirely uh, rose to the challenge. Uh, but there was some redemption in 2007 with Ron Paul, you know, really revitalizing the anti-war movement and bringing youth into it, which is something that was really missing and needed a new round of youth. Because all those move on and Daily Coast readers, uh, you know, moved on uh, after. Uh, <laughs> they did move on. <laughs> they moved on. <laughs> they moved on from their anti-war position, as you mentioned earlier. Kind of once Obama came into office, suddenly being anti-war was no longer liberal. It was no longer cool. I don't know what happened, but you know, like you said, the libertarians are, are trying to bring it back, and I think we're doing a pretty good job. Now, since you mentioned Obama being in office and how that kind of hindered the anti-war movement quite a bit. But at the same time, I think, you know, what would happen if John McCain was in office? Obviously, I don't support any of these guys. Uh, Mitt Romney was in office. And, you know, this year we got finally, you know, something. It may not be huge, but it's something. We got a peace deal with Iran, or I don't know if you'd call it a peace deal, but it's, it's a somewhat of a new deal on their nuclear program that is supposed to hopefully bring peace or, or stop, you know, a war. At the same time, we're getting the same old voices, the neocons, all sorts of politicians calling for increased sanctions and more sanctions. So what's going on there with Iran? And, you know, where do you see everything going? Do you think it's any different now that we have Obama in office as opposed to, say, a Romney administration? Well, gosh, I, you know, I hate doing crystal balls in any of these politics or alternative histories, but I would just say there's just as much reason to fear the disaster of a Romney administration. I don't think we would have been any better off. I'm more afraid that the bombs would already be dropping if we, you know, if we had a, a Romney in there or something like that. I mean, again, I'm no Obama fan, but it, I don't know if there'd even be talks or anything like that if we had a Romney. I think that the bombs might already be flying. Or do you think that the anti-war non-interventionist movement is maybe strong enough to even have held that off? Well, I think that the American people have had enough. That was obvious during Syria. I mean, that really became, it was very, very clear. When you had people showing up at town halls to, to yell at John McCain, and normal people, conservative people, people who are not freaks or counterculture people or you know, not bohemians and so on, or Ron Paul hippies, but real, you know, actual regular Americans <laughs> saying no nonsense. That, that's when you know it's, it's public opinion has shifted. And I do think, I mean, is it obviously clearly anti-empire? No, but they're becoming quite skeptical and annoyed about going into the, you know, and it's all the Middle East to them. That, I mean, normal people don't give a crap what's what or what's out there. It's, it might as well be Mars. But people are tired of that. And I think the Iran propaganda, I mean, at some point people were going to catch on, right? I mean, no matter how many times you said it on Fox that the Iranians were, you know, a year away from getting this nuke and this thing, and it's clear that they've been saying that for 30 years and nothing, you know, it doesn't make any sense, and you know it's, you know it's nonsense. And why, I mean, if you bother to read a little bit, I mean, why wouldn't we be friends with 
the Iranians. It's one of those economies that's going to grow and develop, and they want to be a first world force in terms of an economy. You know, why can't we let them be great? You know, it's just totally, it's total nonsense. It, there's no reason for it. I mean, it's a silly, it's a very, very silly ideology. It's a really, really silly stance. It's not modern. It's not cosmopolitan. We should be, you know, we should be globalist. Got to have someone's going to take that out of context. I'm an anarchist, and anarchism, you know, voluntary, you know, voluntary interactions. Why not trade voluntarily or do something with someone in China that you meet online? I mean, that shouldn't that be the way we do things? I think so. I mean, I think it'd be a better, a better world. That's why cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are going to be a really, really wonderful thing because it allows trade and interact with each other irrespective of uh, governments and their crazy rules that are completely arbitrary and. I want to touch real quick before we go on what I call the forgotten wars, uh, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war. Uh, the Iraq war, I, I think, is in terms of PR purposes, is quote unquote officially over, but you know, every day, thank God to antiwar.com, it's, it seems like almost every day you guys are reporting on another bombing in Iraq or attack in Iraq. So there's clearly, you know, the, the uh, role of the U.S. may be in question, but there's clearly no peace in Iraq, uh, since we've been there. And of course, Afghanistan, we're still firmly entrenched. So what do you think is going on with those wars? Are they going to kind of crumble altogether? I mean, is there a chance of, I guess I'd say, and again, this is asking you for a minor prediction of sorts, but do you see more U.S. intervention coming as this stuff collapses and these these kind of wars break down a little bit? Or do you think that this non-interventionist trend is going to continue and it's just going to see us, you know, pulling out more? You know, we're kind of spared in Baghdad, the, uh, you know, the last uh, copter out of Saigon moment. I think um, because of the way it's covered, we've got, I guess, mercenaries and that embassy or that giant embassy production giant thing that Justin Romano always describes as bigger than the Vatican over there. So it's very unclear when we'll ever actually be out of there. I mean, obviously the reason why there's all kinds of sectarian fighting is, is that we took down the uh, monster that they had for no good reason and they created complete chaos because... Uh, Saddam Hussein, while a piece of, uh, you know, not, not an admirable human being in any way, shape, or form, to be certain, did kind of keep the peace, and he was a very, you know, he was a secular, moderate sort, uh, I mean, as far as, you know, dictators go. It uh, was a very, very silly, stupid thing to do, in addition to being horribly inhumane, cruel, and clearly something that, if I believe in prison, someone should be in prison for, that's for sure. <laughs> um, there's nothing good to say about Afghanistan. And there's just plenty of, you know, we've run plenty of news stories that there's plenty of evidence that there's, you know, there's going to be some presence there until 2024, you know. I mean, the anti-interventionist trend is going to be good for certain things, like, I almost feel good about the fact that I, I can maybe, my gut tells me there's going to be no war with Iran. Well, that's good. That's that means, gut. uh... My Christmas wish might be fulfilled. In our last podcast, me and my friends, my compatriots here at the Lions of Liberty all gave our wish for the new year, and mine was just not to have another major war that we get involved in because it just becomes so much more difficult, let alone all the death and destruction that we're opposed to, but it just becomes so much more difficult to have a rational discourse on this stuff when people are in a kind of a patriotic war fever frenzy. So that's my wish, and I'm, I'm glad you, you know, hopefully see my wish coming true this year. Angela, thank you so much for your time. Before I let you go, and I gotta say, please keep up the good work at antiwar.com. Guys, it's the end of the year. By the time this podcast is released, it's gonna be the day before the end of the year. If you wanna 
you know, give the government a little less money this year and give to a good cause at the same time. Remember, antiwar.com is a non-profit institute. Any dime you give to them will not be taxed. And, it, you know, like I said, it goes to a great cause. People trying to, you know, further this non-interventionist cause and, and stop more wars. And again, we thank you guys for that. Before I let you go, let me just, uh, I'll let you plug anything you got doing, any, uh, where people can find, you know, your writing, everything you're doing at antiwar.com, and as well as all the other organizations you're involved with, social media, all that stuff. Antiwar.com. I would suggest, no, I don't know how good an idea this is, but you could follow me on Twitter. It's antiwar too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's a great about- idea. I follow you on Twitter too. So if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for my listeners. First time I've ever plugged my Twitter account. That's another story. But anyway, I'm just really grateful. And, you know, I wanted to say to whomever's out there listening, there's some great books on General Compendium on anti-war reading. So you can always email me at akeaton at antiwar.com for information for those sorts of things. Angela Keaton, thanks again for coming on to the Lions of Liberty podcast. And have a great 2014. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care. Have a good one. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. (laughs) You're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, guys, thank you to Angela Keaton for joining me in the Lions of Liberty studios the day after Christmas to discuss the major foreign policy stories of the past year. And if one thing is clear from the past year is that, you know, non-interventionism, a non-interventionist foreign policy, the anti-war movement, the liberty movement, is here to stay. You know, from heroes like Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, the Ron Paul geeks out there are letting people know what their government is doing. And people don't like it. People aren't buying the same arguments anymore when they know the government is spying on them. When they know the government is torturing people. When they know the government is killing innocent people. And people aren't buying the same tired foreign policy excuses either. Those tired arguments of the neocons. The whole, we gotta kill them there before they kill us here stuff is just not flying anymore. And this is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing for peace. It's a wonderful thing for liberty. Well, this is no time to let up, guys. The neocons certainly won't. Keep your voices loud and bold and speak out. Speak up for what you believe in. Even if liberty's not what you believe in. Even if anti-war is not what you believe in. My God, I don't know what you're doing, so listen to this podcast. But even if it's not, speak out for that. Speak up for what you believe in. 
and meet me on the internet and we'll debate about it. Because that's the great thing about this technology. We can do that. We don't need to just turn on the TV and be mindless zombies and listen to what the mainstream news tells us and just buy it hook, line, and sinker and move along with our lives. No, we got technology now. Anybody can buy a computer. Anybody can buy a microphone. Anybody can listen to this podcast. Anybody can create their own podcast or website and get their beliefs out there. And that's why I have such a positive outlook, despite some of the scary, frightening subjects we've covered on on this show that's why i have a positive outlook about the future because as long as we can keep communicating it's like the printing press you know it was a revolution suddenly people could print anything on paper and go hand it to people well what do you know well guess what it's so much easier now i don't even need to leave my house I can sit down on my computer and just keep going on rants and shooting them out to the internet And it has an effect. I'm not saying I have an effect, but it all has an effect. It cumulatively has an effect. When voices that weren't getting out before, rational voices for peace are getting out, it has an effect on society. It's having a clear effect. A decade ago, I guarantee you, you'd have U.S. troops in the ground dropping bombs on Syria. We'd have videos showing us people partying in Syria, having a liberation party. And, you know, it would be such a great thing that we invaded and saved another country. Well, they're not buying it anymore. We're in a new world, guys. We're in a new world, and it's whatever we make of it. So let's make it a more peaceful one. We just had a last week of Christmas. People are more nice to each other. People are maybe just you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> we should apply that to foreign policy, too. We should apply that to everything. There are peaceful ways to solve any conflict, any conflict of interests. There's peaceful ways to do everything. <laughs> Of course, you gotta defend yourself. You gotta defend your family. But there's no reason to start violence, folks. And I think, and I like to think we're gonna see a lot less of it in the future as more people kind of start to understand this. Thank you so much to everybody for listening to this very first season of the Lions of Liberty podcast in 2013. Three or four months ago, I didn't even know I was going to have a podcast right now. And now I've got, you know, what I think is a decent little show here that people are listening to. And I'm excited to be doing it. I'm excited to have you listening. And I'm excited to have you guys checking us out at lionsliberty.com. That's right. You've been trapped in the plug zone. I got to plug it. Come on, guys. Not everybody knows about this yet. And you can plug it yourself, sharing it on your social media, finding us on social media, and telling your friends about it. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Find us on Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. We're active on there. Google Plus. And if you're a fan of this podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Head over there, drop us a comment, drop us a rating. That'll really help, you know, help us get more people to see our podcast as well. Tell a friend about it. <laughs> when you're drunk at your New Year's Eve party... You can, you can drunkenly tell a friend about Lions of Liberty, this great podcast. You gotta hear it, man. <laughs> I don't care how you do it. But let's keep spreading these ideas, guys. Because I think we're going to see a better world as a result of it. And hopefully, Miss Keaton is right and we won't see a major war next year. And it's thanks to all of us. Thanks to the libertarian movement, the anti-war movement. So we got to keep it up. And keep it up, we shall. I hope you'll keep it up. And I hope you'll keep listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. We will have a brand new show for you next week, next year. Our first show at 2014, we're going to have on Jeffrey Tucker. Fairly well-known name in the Liberty Movement. Talk about his new project, Liberty.me. Until then, live long.